equip Missio Mesa to faithfully take up our role in God's story. And we're doing it by looking at four simple but central practices of the people of God. So last weekend, uh, Nick Johnson spoke about gathering. And today, I'm going to talk about the practice of giving. Now, before you head for the exits, give, give me a second here, okay? Because I am actually super excited to be up here and talk to you guys today about this subject. Because I think this can sometimes be a subject that brings anxiety and fear. Sometimes it can bring discontentment. Sometimes it can bring pride. But I'm super excited to dive into this and look at how Jesus actually invites us to a perspective that is super beautiful. Um, before we talk about that, though, I want to talk about one of the strongest physical forces I've ever encountered. Uh, it was almost a year ago that I was out in Oceanside, California with my lovely wife, Nicole, and our good friends, Jake and Cole Lawrenson. We were hanging out on the beach. It was a beautiful day. The weather was perfect. The girls were hanging on the beach. Jake and I decided to get in the water and swim. As we're playing around in the water, we look out. And in the distance, dude, we see some massive waves come crashing down. That's probably pretty close, right? To accurate? Okay, yeah, a little bigger. If, you're, if you've ever been to Oceanside, they don't get that big. But, it, yeah. Anyway, so we saw this massive wave. We're like, dude, we got to get out there. And let's try to body surf that in. So we start heading out, and we get to the waves, and they're crashing down. And it was so weird, though, because as I'm standing in the waves, and I'm trying to let it push me to the shore... It wasn't pushing me to the shore at all. And I'm like, huh, this is weird. And so we're there for a little bit. And instead of pushing me to the shore, I actually started to feel the opposite. I felt the wave pulling me in. It was a strong current that was pulling me in. And I didn't even realize I was caught up in it. Finally, a switch flipped in my head. And I said, oh, no, this is not good. So I just remember turning to Jake. I don't know what he was thinking at the time because he's probably a good 10 yards from me, 20 yards. I said, dude, we got to get out of here. So I just remember starting and trying to swim as fast as I can towards the shore. And I'm making no progress. I got caught up in a rip current. And I'm swimming. And dude, I just remember my heart beating. I'm starting to feel exhausted. And then I look up on the beach and I see the lifeguard truck pull up on the shore. They got their lights on. The lifeguards get out of the trucks, and they start heading to the water. And my first thought is, oh, my gosh, I hope they're not here for me. This is going to be so embarrassing. My wife's never going to let me forget that someone half my age had to come rescue me in the ocean. To about 10 seconds later, I was still making no progress, and I went from, oh, my gosh, I hope they're not here for me, to please come quicker. I need help. Dude, I was in a panic. Somehow, Jake and I were able to get out of the current, uh, Jake's a strong guy, keto diet, I'm going to chalk that up to that for you. Me, I swam a lot of laps in like junior high swim team, so maybe that was it. So I don't know, but somehow we were able to get out, we get to the shore, the lifeguards actually run past us, and they're actually going to go help some other people close to where we were swimming. And I just remember collapsing on the shore, almost in disbelief, like I can't believe I just walked into that. I didn't know what I was in. It was such a strong force, and it had the power to destroy me. Um, tonight, we're going to read a passage, and I think the topic is concerning something that has the effect of a rip current. I think sometimes it's hard for us to see or recognize, 
but it's a strong and powerful force that can actually keep us from God and the life that we were meant to live. And if we're not careful, it has the power to destroy us. So we're going to be in Matthew 6. Uh, We're going to be in verse 19 and read all the way down to 34. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy and your whole body is full of light, but if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow's thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Okay, I'm not going to be able to dissect every line in this passage. It's a lot. It's, it's big. One thing we are going to focus on is verse 33, where it says, Seek first his kingdom and righteousness. What is the kingdom that Jesus wants us to seek? Even though this is just one line in this passage, it's actually a big theme both in this sermon, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and in Jesus' ministry, his life on earth, right? Um, This Matthew 6 passage, his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is proclaiming his kingdom and what the rule and reign of God actually looks like. And it kind of blows everybody's minds, and it's way different than they expected. Now, I realize I'm supposed to be talking about giving, and if you notice, there wasn't one line about giving uh, in this passage. But as I was praying about what to share, I kept being drawn back to this. Uh, Jesus is contrasting two different masters. He's contrasting two different ways to view wealth in the world. There's two different competing kingdoms here, right? And I think it's really important that actually shapes why and how we give. One of these kingdoms has the effect of a rip current. The other one has some similarities. It's also a strong and powerful force, but it's one that pushes us in a completely different direction. So the first current that we're going to look at is the cultural current, is what I'm calling it. Uh, So let's test your cultural knowledge a little bit. You guys ready? I I need some participation here. So I'm going to start a slogan, and I'm going to ask and see if you guys know what this slogan represents. Don't worry. You're not going to be shamed if you get it right, okay? You're not walking into a trap. 
Okay, uh, the happiest place on earth. Disney, right? You're in good hands. Allstate. Just do it. Nike, man, you guys are good. Uh, this thing gives you wings. Red Bull, man. Eat more chicken. Chick-fil-A. All right. So Sorry to make you hungry. Well, it's closed today. All right, so what's the point, right? We're very familiar with these slogans, guys, because we're constantly being sold to. They're ingrained in our minds. We're constantly be, being told that if we want to be secure, if we want to be happy, we better have this type of insurance. We better go to this place. If we want to perform well, Nike or Red Bull is the way to go, right? These examples are extreme. And honestly, guys, it's nothing wrong to have or use these things, okay? So hear that from me. Um, but it's an example to show that we're constantly being told that our performance, our security, our happiness lies within our control, and wealth is the vehicle that helps us get there, right? We control these things with what we buy, the experiences that we have, how much we save, and if money is the thing that helps us get there, the more that we want to pursue it, and the more it becomes our master. Verse 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It may not be Red Bull, and it may not be insurance. I'm guessing it's not. But what currently rules your guys' thoughts, your energy, your focus, your time, your spending? What's the thing that you're worried about? What's the thing that you can't wait to get, that you're striving for? Or what's the thing that maybe you have that you're afraid to lose? I'm going to give us a, th a second to think about it. Is it a new car? Could be saving for retirement, a house, some trip or experience. Maybe it's certain types of clothes or toys to make sure that we get in with our ideal friend group. Whatever rules our thoughts, our energy, our focus, our money, guys, that is our master. Get this. Advertising is expected to be a trillion-dollar industry by 2025. 394 billion of that, that's 40%, is in North America alone. Okay, so we in North America have 40% of the world's ad spend. Now, what do you think the percentage of the population of North America is compared to the rest of the world? It's less than 5%. Why do you think we spend that much money on advertising to us? Why do they spend it here? It's because we spend a majority of the world's money. <laughs> There's a lot of people in the world, guys, who live on less than $5 a day. The National Retail Federation is estimating that Americans will spend $12 billion this year on Halloween. That's more than the gross national product of a lot of countries. So what does this tell us? It tells us that we're a culture. We live in a culture that's built on consumption, excess, and greed. We're constantly being sold and told that we're not enough and we don't have enough, but in order to be happy or content, we need fill in the blank. Guys, it's a rip current. It's pulling us in and it produces anxiety and greed and discontentment. And we can easily get pulled into either anxiously trying to obtain something or stress out about not trying to lose it, right? And if this life of not worrying like Jesus talks about is either overwhelming or seems impossible, 
my guesses were more pulled into the rip current than we even realize. Okay, now going back to verses 21 through 23. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Okay, what does this mean? Dallas Willard sums this up really well. He says, sorry, I know it's a really long quote, but he says, Our treasure focuses our heart. Remember that our heart is our will or our spirit, the center of our being from which our life flows. It is what gives orientation to everything we do. A heart rightly directed therefore brings health and wholeness to the entire personality. To bring this truth home, Jesus compares our heart sight to our eyesight. The person who treasures what lies within the kingdom sees everything in its true worth and relationship. But the person who treasures what is on earth, by contrast, sees everything from a perspective that distorts it. Guys, when we choose to not be in the kingdom current and we're not focused on the kingdom and we caught in this cultural current, our vision is literally turned upside down. Our perspective gets distorted. And we end up building our own little kingdoms where we believe that we're in control. We trade an eternal outlook for temporary pleasures or security. We think it's up to us to make sure that we have security and comfort and pleasure and approval. But the problem with this is, is Jesus says in verse 19, right, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, the stuff that we build up, the stuff that we look to for for approval and security and comfort and pleasure, none of it lasts. It's going to be damaged. It's going to be stolen, right? I don't care if you put 20 rolls of duct tape on it or give it a bath in rustoleum. It will not last, okay? And here's the thing. It will not satisfy. It's not enough. There's always another milestone. There's always something else to look to, right? There's always something better. If it was enough, the people with the most money would be the most content and the least anxious, But last time I read the headlines, that's not the case, right? You see some people who have all the riches and fame in the world built up, but I see addictions. I see broken relationships, right? I see brokenness. I see some people who are very wealthy and they're super generous and super content and have a lot of peace. But I also see some people who are wealthy who aren't. They're discontent and fearful and greedy, So apparently money and wealth is not the thing that can bring us security and joy, right? And guys, let me just be honest with you. I have struggled with this, okay? And I've had to grow in this area a lot, and I still have a lot of growing to do. There's been a lot of times in my life where I have a stingy, scarcity-based mindset. I feel like there's not enough. I'm scared that there's not enough. I'm scared that I'm not going to be taken care of. And so I do what I can to control what I can control. And I get anxious. I have often felt behind and lacking. I felt behind the ball in wherever I need to be, whatever the financial planners say I need to have by this point in my life, right? And that brings anxiety and discontentment. I get caught in a trap of comparison. Comparison is a thief of joy. And guys, usually when I struggle with anxiety, honestly, if it's regards to wealth or sometimes even performance, I had a lot of anxiety this week even just preparing for this, to be honest. But when I struggle with it, it's because my focus is not on God and who he is, 
and trusting in what he's done and trusting what he says he's going to do. It's because my focus is is on me and my temporary mindset and my own kingdom, and I'm scared that I'm going to lose it. So I got to control it better. I got to hunker down, right? And I got to rule my territory well. But will the worry and anxiety and control actually do any good? Verse 27, right? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? It doesn't do any good. Here's another thought that can creep in. I've worked hard, right? Like, yeah, God's given me gifts, but I've worked hard, so I've earned it, and I've deserved what I had. Well, this is a good verse that speaks to that. Moses gives a speech to the new generation of Israel, right, as calling them to be faithful in their covenant with God, who had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And it says, when you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then jump into verse 17. He says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Guys, I have three little humans at home that I dearly love. And when they were really little, they're learning their first words. Usually it's mama, dada, no. And then another popular one is mine, right? And they often like to use that word when it's not being associated with something that actually is theirs, right? It's someone else's toy. It's their brother's. It's their sister's. They're at someone's house. Mine. Well, to be honest, we actually do the same thing. We get proud at times thinking like, man, we've built up this life for ourselves or we've worked hard or we've got here, we've bootstrapped this. But guys, we can easily forget that God is the one who created us. He is the one that made us and gave us our very personality and skill sets and connections and just the life that we possess, right? We begin to elevate the gifts over the giver. And I think you can see here, he's not condemning Israel for the ability to produce wealth, okay? So I don't think having wealth is wrong. I don't think it's bad. But I think it's a warning to say, hey, when we accumulate wealth, it can easily lead us to a place of pride where we're no longer submitting to God, where we're no longer depending on him, where we're no longer submitting to his ways and purposes. So what is the focus of our heart? Where is our treasure? Uh, I know sometimes even, and guys, I'm just naming the ones in my heart, okay? So these examples, if they resonate with you, I'm glad you're not alone, okay? I know sometimes we can set up our own little kingdoms and give Jesus a small enough piece, kind of like acknowledging him or paying kind of like a God tax to be like, hey, if I just give enough to God or I make him content with this, then he's going to give me what I want. He's going to let me have what I want to have, right? Or maybe, again, sometimes we can be generous, but maybe we love how it makes us feel when we can be generous specifically in front of others, right, for their approval. But whose kingdoms are we really seeking here, right? So whether we're caught in discontentment, anxiety, greed, pride, the kingdoms can all look a variety of different ways, right? But they all start in our hearts. And if we're not examining our hearts, 
we can get caught up in these strong currents without even knowing it. So the bad news, guys, and I'm sorry to be such a downer. This feels really down right now, right? Don't worry. Good news is coming. But the bad news is that these kingdoms that we set up in our pursuit are diametrically opposed to God. Jesus says we cannot serve both. I think sometimes we feel like we can. I think sometimes we feel like, hey, I can be in the waves and on the beach at the same time. Sometimes we might think, hey, you can be a Lakers fan and a Suns fan. I would say no. Uh, Technically, that could be up for debate. But here's the thing. Jesus' statement is not up for debate. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Okay? But here's the good news. Jesus offers us a different alternative from the cultural current that brings anxiety and worry temporary satisfaction, temporary security. Guys, he invites us into a different current, another powerful one, and it's going in a different direction. And this one leads us away from worry and destruction and into true life. This one is called the kingdom of God. I'm going to call it the kingdom current today because it just goes with the story. Um, But if we want to look at what the kingdom of God is, in order to understand that kingdom, we actually need to look at the story of God. Because everything Jesus is talking about in this passage is actually rooted in story. So we're going to look at in creation. So here's our, our symbols, right? Walking us through the entire story of God through scripture. And in the beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the world and everything in it, and everything was good. He created mankind in his image, but not only that, he created mankind to actually co-rule with him, right? He gave them dominion to subdue the earth, to cultivate and bring goodness out of it. God's the creator of everything, and he created an abundance of good things and wanted us to help take care of it. But then in Genesis 3, in the rebellion, Even though God created this abundance, mankind decided they weren't going to trust God, that he was good, that he wasn't going to provide enough. They decided to eat from the one tree that God had told them not to, right? Taking into their own hands to decide what was right and wrong and not trusting God and his rule and reign. And that fractured creation impacted their relationship with each other, with God, and with creation, And from here on out, from this point on out, mankind, sin had entered the world, and mankind was now bent on setting up their own kingdoms apart from God, where they would rule for themselves and try to decide what was right and wrong. But check this out. In chapter 3, verse 21, even in the rebellion, God still provided clothes for them. God still came near and provided for them, even when Adam and Eve were at their very worst. And then we go to the next act in the story, and that's promise. In Genesis 12, God once again in his goodness and generosity makes a promise to a man named Abram, right? He was once again going to make himself known to a people to form them and invite them to live under his good rule and reign and care. He promised Abram that he was going to bless him, right? And that through his family, all peoples on the earth would be blessed. Shortly after that, the people of Israel, they became the people of Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt. But God rescued them. God provided for them when they were in the wilderness. God gave them law to live under his rule and reign. The law even helped establish an economic system on the principle that you have more than enough. And it is your responsibility to give to the poor. 
It's your responsibility to give to God through the worshiping community, through the temple. But despite God's generosity and goodness, his own people, Israel, would continue to rebel against God and his reign, setting up their own kingdoms, following their own ways that leads to brokenness and destruction. But God would remain faithful to his promises. Years and years later, after the people of Israel constantly failed to hold up, bearing the image of God, how they were created, to live under his rule and reign, a new image bearer appeared. But this one was different. This one was actually God himself in the flesh. Jesus, his son, came on the scene to announce that the kingdom of God was here. It was breaking in. But what does this mean? What does this kingdom look like? That's exactly where we are in Matthew 6. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus coming and describing this kingdom. N.T. Wright says this about the Sermon on the Mount. The life of heaven, the life of the realm where God is already king, is to become the life of the world, transforming the present earth into the place of beauty and delight that God always intended. And those who follow Jesus are to begin to live by this rule here and now. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in particular. They are a summons to live in the present in the way that will make sense in God's promised future because that future has arrived in the present in Jesus of Nazareth. Guys, the kingdom had come in the person of Jesus. He had come to announce his rule and reign, and I love this line, transform the present earth into the place of beauty and delight that God had always intended. And it's a summons to live in the present in the way that makes sense in God's promised future. This is not the only life. The alternative that Jesus is offering us is living life that makes sense in the future. Now, how can Jesus say all this, though, to not worry and to look to the future? It's because he knows the story. He knows that we're in a story. He knows the kingdom current, the kingdom of God, is so much deeper and richer and better than any cultural currents in front of him. And he knows and trusts that there's a heavenly father who loves us and will provide for us. And then with Jesus coming onto the scene after this point in time, he actually gives us so much more than we deserved. He came and accomplished what we could not as image bearers, and then he traded places with us. He offers us a place in his kingdom as sons and daughters, and he then took the consequences for our rebellion. Guys, everything that wealth fails to offer or satisfy has been fully offered and satisfied and met in Jesus. This is redemption. He gives us a place in his kingdom as children. That cannot be taken away. It can't rust. It can't be stolen. He gives us security that we cannot squander. It's not going to be lost in any stock market or real estate market. He gives us the reason that we don't have to be in control because he is good, he is great, and he will provide. I think looking to Jesus is our first step of not worrying Because in order to know and experience the kingdom, we first need to seek the king. Guys, the kingdom is here. The kingdom has come. It's a kingdom current, and it cannot be stopped, okay? He is reigning, and Jesus wants to bring more of his kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? But the big question is, is are we going to trust him? Are we going to look to him for provision, Are we going to trust that he's going to provide if we follow what he says? Or are we going to follow our own kingdoms in ways that aren't going to last? 
So as followers of Jesus, I want to invite us to live into this identity of someone who's made in his image as a co-ruler who's been given a place in his kingdom. You're loved and you're valued by the king and have confidence that he is good. He knows what's best and he will provide. Okay, so do not, do not worry. If you're not yet following Jesus, my invitation to you is to join his kingdom, to submit to him as king and experience the flourishing that comes under his good rule and reign. And here's the thing. The flourishing isn't a material flourishing. This flourishing is something that impacts the depths of our very souls, which brings peace and joy and love and contentment. It's about living a life and surrendering yourself to the one who has made you and the world around you. Okay. So now we're brought into this kingdom. What do we do? Go back to verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So to continue our story, we're going to look at the next section, which is the church. So after the resurrection, Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again. And before he ascended into heaven, he sent his followers out, and he told them to teach people everything that he had taught them, right? And that he was also not going to leave them alone, that he was going to send them a helper, his very spirit, right, to be with them, to empower them. This gives us a glimpse of what the life looked like for the early church after Jesus ascended into heaven. Acts 2, 42 to 47 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved." Now, you might look at this. I hope this pumps you up and says, man, this is such a cool picture. Like, I wish we could do that. Well, guys, when we pull our finances and our resources together as the church, when you give to, to Missio Mesa, it actually allows us to do this. Okay, I'm going to read just a few examples of, in the last couple months, how our giving has been used. We've been able to provide rent for someone that was at risk of losing their home. We've been able to share medical costs for a family member. We've been able to provide meals for people who don't have homes. Transportation's been provided for people to get to job interviews. Resources were pulled together for a young immigrant family. Financial needs were met for a family member who's incarcerated. Globally, we've been a part of equipping and encouraging and providing resources to church planners in Scotland, Eastern Sahara, Mexico, and the country of Georgia. Additionally, we're going to use some of our shared resources to equip disciple makers from Ukraine, Australia, Hungary, and Canada. Guys, when we pool our finances together, it allows us to also use this building. And in this building, we've been able to gather clothing for immigrant families, incubate a kingdom-minded business, host prayer meetings. Uh, what Taylor talked about earlier, the dance studio, that is possible because of other people's generosity here in this space. Additionally, Kevin is freed up to continue equipping community and leading Missio Day communities and serving the global church in different capacities. Guys, this is awesome stuff, right? Like, it's awesome to be a part of it. And I don't think we should view giving as an obligation. I think we view it as an opportunity. 
It's an opportunity to bring more of the goodness of God and bring more of his kingdom in our midst. Here's another snapshot of the early church, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. It says, Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up for themselves <clears throat> as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Guys, that's a current that I want to get caught up in. Sorry, it got cut off. We had a little slide issue. That was my bad. Um, but one where the focus isn't on how much I obtain, but it's the focus is on God. Here's what I have. Here's what you have given me. How do you want to use me? And guys, that is the opportunity to bring life, true life. Giving is an act of trust and obedience that God is the one that cares for us and ultimately provides. And here's the thing. When we shift our focus a little bit less on our own wants and desires or even needs, and when we shift it onto his kingdom, guys, I really believe that we seek less control and we're going to experience more contentment. I think we experience less worry, and it leads us to more worship. We start seeing our resources as kingdom resources that can be used to spread love and justice and mercy and grace and establish more of his kingdom in our midst, a kingdom that has no end. Guys, that is a kingdom we're seeking. So why do we give? Just to summarize. We give because Jesus is king. And we submit to his rule and reign. We give because it's all his. We recognize everything that we have is his. And he has generously given to us. And then we also give to take part in his kingdom that brings about true life. And it has no end. It doesn't fade away. Now, I just want to acknowledge, though, that I know this isn't easy. Okay, it's easy to say this in here and believe this in here and get pumped up and then we go out there and we're being sold a billion different things literally that's saying you should find your happiness and security in something other than Jesus, right? Or you might be in a place right now where this is really hard to hear because you might feel like you're suffocating financially. Guys, I know we're in a tough time economically, okay? Inflation has been really tough. Gas, groceries, other costs have gone through the roof. And I know you're probably feeling it or you know someone that does. So if you're experiencing stress, I definitely don't want to minimize that. We know Jesus says not to worry, right? But the reality is, is we still live in a broken world. His kingdom's come, but it hasn't been fully made complete. And so even in the times where we see injustice and face these things, but the kingdom doesn't seem to be breaking in, when there's a need that's maybe not being met, what, what do we do with that? Does anyone know how you're supposed to get out of a rip current? Here's a clue. It wasn't the way Jake and I tried. I don't know, maybe you tried it. I was too busy swimming, but it wasn't the way I tried. I tried swimming against it, and it felt like a fight. The way you actually get out of a rip current is just to go in a completely different direction. You're not fighting against it. You're not giving into it. You go a different direction. And guys, uh, so I want to bring up two prayers and two practices that if we feel ourselves getting caught up in this cultural current, we just need to go in a different direction. And these will help us follow that kingdom current. 
The first one is saying just a prayer of gratitude. Kevin led us through that earlier, and it was beautiful. God, thank you for entrusting me with blank. It's acknowledging that everything that we have, our time, I know I'm speaking of wealth specifically today, but this is related to our time, our talents, and our treasures, right? God, you have given this to me. Thank you. A prayer of repentance. God, where do I have an unhealthy attachment to earthly treasures? Where am I building up my own kingdom? And then a practice. We give. We give generously as a priority and not an afterthought. Because if it's God that's giving these things to us, if it's actually his, we steward it, we take care of it, but then we want to give it back to him in worship. And guys, hear me again. I'm not saying buying stuff is bad, okay? I'm not saying saving is bad. I'm not saying investing is bad. I actually think those are really good and wise practices. And to be a good steward, I actually do that for my job. I help people grow their wealth, okay? So I'm not here to condemn that at all. Um, But I think, and I think God wants us to really enjoy some of the good gifts that he gives, right? Like Like that can reflect us back to him and back to worship. But the question is, what is our priority Again, are we lifting that gift above the giver? What are we treasuring? What kingdom? Whose kingdom are we seeking first? Are we seeking our own happiness? Or are we seeking God's kingdom? Giving as a response to the generosity of God that we have received, and it's an outward response of an inward work that's going on in our hearts. So do we give more? These are some tough questions, but do we give more to the church Or do we spend more on entertainment? When our income increases, what goes up more? Our standard of giving or a standard of living? Are we upgrading to the bigger house and the nicer cars because we can tolerate the payments? Or did we actually seek God in it to say, God, how do you want me to handle these finances? If you've richly and generously blessed me with blank, God, how should I be taking care of this? Do we worry more about helping the poor or funding our savings and our retirement? Giving to the local church and giving to the poor are practices that the people of God historically have done for a really long time. And it does often mean that we're going to live with less. It means that our neighbors are probably going to have more with us. Um, But that's okay because we don't believe this is the only life that we get. And that brings us to the last point is we remember We remember that this life is not the end of the story. Guys, the cultural current wants us to believe that we're in a life, that this is the only life that we live, and so we better save it as much as possible. We better enjoy it. We better spend it on ourselves. But the Bible tells us a different story and that this world is not the end, right? There's another world that's coming. We can make investments into that world. That is treasure in heaven. And so... That brings us to our last act is restoration. In Revelation 21 and 22, where the story wraps up saying that one day his kingdom will be fully complete. It will be fully present and done away with once and for all. A new heaven, a new earth will appear and God's dwelling place will be among his people. And all who submit to him will be able to enjoy abundance under his good rule and reign forever. 
Guys, it's not going to rust. It's not going to disappear. It's not going to fade. The only kingdom that exists is the kingdom of God. There's no more cultural current that sneaks in, overwhelms us, or devours us. There is the only kingdom current that brings life and true life. And so as we wait for that day to come, we have one other tangible practice, and that's the table. We take communion. And we come to remember that Jesus, the King of Kings, put on human flesh to bring about his kingdom, and he gave his life to save ours. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes to Corinth, the church in Corinth, and he describes Jesus saying, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Giving is not about our goodness, guys. It's about his So let's come to the table and celebrate the generosity and goodness of our good and reigning king together. Um, Just a reminder, when we come to the table, Kaylee Ann and I are going to hold it. But if you guys want to go around this way and take it, and then we'll take it all together. (laughs) 